Hey y'all, it's Theo, and welcome back to LGB Time Machine. Last episode, I covered a lot of material about the 1950s and early 1960s, including the Lavender Scare, the homophile movement, and LGBTQ plus bars. Today's episode, we'll be focusing on some smaller LGBTQ plus riots and protests and acts in the 1960s, as well as the Stonewall riots. Some of you might not know, but today, June 28, 2019, is the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Riots, which is a huge deal to the LGBTQ plus community. So first things first, some clarification. I feel like I should mention that in history textbooks and in some retellings, a lot of trans women of color were called drag queens or queens back then, but many went on to come out as trans, and I think it's important to recognize that when I say queens in this episode, I'm quoting history books and articles, but I'm talking about trans women for the most part. Women, who in almost every event I'll talk about in this episode, led the charge for LGBTQ plus rights. I will be using she, her pronouns to talk about these women because they are women. Second thing second, the first half of this episode will focus on smaller rebellions that led up to Stonewall to show that this wasn't a one-off event, that this wasn't a completely unsurprising event, and to show that the LGBTQ plus community is resilient as fuck and has consistently fought back against their oppressors. Now that I've talked too much, let's jump into the time machine and head to the 1960s so I can talk even more. Let's start with Cooper's Donuts. I talked briefly about Cooper's Donuts in the last episode, but it's worth talking about again. Cooper's Donuts was an all-night coffee shop in Los Angeles, California, where a lot of queens and trans men of color, um, as well as hustlers, hung out. Unfortunately, the patrons of Cooper's were often harassed by police officers. Accounts say that officers would often demand to see the IDs of random customers based entirely on how they looked. Occasionally, people would be driven down to the police station for further harassment and persecution. In May 1959, John Ritchie, a hustler, and three others were ordered into a squad car. We don't know what the reasons were, but a small riot broke out, with drag queens and hustlers throwing donuts, cups of coffee, sugar, anything they could get their hands on, really, at the police officers. The police escaped to their cars, and they called in for backup. The street was closed for the rest of the night, and several rioters were arrested. But somehow, Ritchie managed to escape in the chaos. Cooper's Donuts was one of the first riots for the United States LGBTQ plus community, the first time people fought back against the harassment they faced from the police. However, it generally went unrecorded. I mention this because May 1959 was a decade before Stonewall. This episode will focus on breaking down the concept that Stonewall was the only time the LGBTQ plus community fought back, and that, while an extremely important event in history, it's not the only event worth knowing about. Next up, I want to mention a man named Randy Ricker and talk about his protests and actions in the 1960s. An interesting fact about Randolph Hayden Wicker is that he was born Charles Jervin Hayden Jr. in 1938. He changed his name at the request of his father. While Wicker himself said that his father was very supportive, wanting Randy to be, I quote, the best adjusted gay person I could be because he wouldn't always be there to support me, his father, Charles Jervin Hayden Sr., didn't want his name involved in case it jeopardized his job at a company he'd worked at for 27 years. After changing his name, he became one of the most visible activists of the 1960s and 70s. 
When Randy Wicker was 20 years old, he volunteered with the Mattachine Society of New York during his summer break from the University of Texas, and in fact, he lied about his age to get into the group. He was a year too young for their cutoff. He was known for causing controversy within the organization, pushing them to do more, say more. At one point, he printed flyers out for an upcoming Mattachine Society lecture. This led to standing room only at the event, but also angered the police. The police persuaded the la their landlord to evict the Mattachine Society from its headquarters in retaliation. Wicker would later go on to found the Homosexual League of New York in 1962 when he returned to the city after graduation. In 1962, New York's WBAI radio broadcast a program called The Homosexual in America, on which psychiatrists talked about homosexuality as a disease. In response, Wicker marched into the radio station and confronted the public affairs director. In his own words, he told them, This program is illegitimate because homosexuals are the only real authority on homosexuality. In response, the public affairs director offered to let Wicker get a panel of gay men together, and the director would interview them. And so that's what happened on the Live and Let Live program. However, when WBAI announced this program, a right-wing columnist for the New York Journal said that WBAI had announced this program because they thought homosexuals had a right to be heard, and the six-man panel would discuss the ease of living the gay life. In response to that statement, Wicker went to Newsweek, Variety, the New York Times, and told them about the show. When it was broadcast, the show got a write-up in all of these magazines and newspapers, and it became the most publicized broadcast that the radio network ever did. Randy Wicker is also known for having organized a picket outside of the U.S. Army building in Lower Manhattan on September 19, 1964. Its purpose was to protest the military's treatment of gay individuals, specifically their rejection, their less-than-honorable discharges, and the violation of privacy through a policy of sending gay men's records to current and potential employees. Basically, gay men were being declared 4F, unfit for service, and the military was sending these records out to people. It wasn't being kept confidential, and it was destroying gay men's chances of getting hired at other places. The picket was organized with members of the League of Sexual Freedom, which was a mostly heterosexual organization that advocated for free love, the legalization of prostitution, public nudity, and the repeal of censorship and repressive laws regarding human sexuality. The League of Sexual Freedom was founded by Leo Koch and Jefferson Fuck Poland. That is correct, his name is Jefferson Fuck Poland. Poland and Wicker were joined by Craig Rodwell, Renee Vera Cafiero, Renee's girlfriend Nancy Garden, and Jack Dyther. The group handed out flyers titled The Army Invades Sexual Privacy and had signs declaring things like Homosexuals Died for U.S. Too, Love and Let Love, Army Invades Sexual Privacy, and Keep Draft Records Confidential. While this event didn't see a ton or really any media attention, this was the very first public demonstration for gay rights in the United States. On top of that protest, Wicker also organized a picket outside the Great Hall at Cooper Union on December 2, 1964. This was the second ever public demonstration for gay rights in the United States. Its goal was to challenge the psychiatric profession's views on homosexuality. Randy, two gay men, historians think one was Craig Rodwell, but this isn't for sure, and one lesbian, who we know was Kay Tobin, handed out pamphlets that protested against a psychiatrist, Dr. Paul R. Dintz, who was there to present a lecture entitled Homosexuality, a Disease. Hmm. 
you know, I have a lot of feelings about that, but we're just going to focus on what Randy Wicker and his friends did and not the fact that people used to think homosexuality was a disease because, mm, fun. So the groups had signs reading, we request 10 minutes rebuttal time. And the forum chairman agreed to the group's request, which was amazing. Wicker used the time to challenge the theory that homosexuality was a disease, and his challenge was well-received by the audience. So Randy Wicker will most certainly be getting a spotlight episode later on, but it felt important to cover some of his actions here and now with this episode, especially the fact that, like, he went on radio. He had a radio broadcast talking about being homosexual in the United States. He organized the first two protests for gay rights in the U.S. That's pretty amazing. And was pretty damn groundbreaking for its time. And still is. So another event I wanted to discuss was the Council on Religion and Homosexuality's Costume Party. The organization, called, you can probably guess, the Council on Religion and Homosexuality, was formed in 1964 due to alliances between gay activists and the clergy, and it hosted a New Year's Eve party on December 31st, 1964, January 1st, 1965. This party took place at California Hall on Polk Street at Turk in San Francisco, California, and it was attended by numerous lesbians, gay men, drag queens, clergymen, their wives, friends, and lawyers. So the CRH had filed all of the proper paperwork and acquired the necessary permits and had even met with the sex crimes department of the San Francisco Police Department prior to the event to ensure that things went smoothly. Despite this, over 20 police officers showed up at the event. They blocked the intersection and they photographed and harassed event attendees and even filmed them entering the building. Some were even arrested. While police raids of homosexual establishments and events weren't uncommon, this event got unprecedented media coverage due to the clergymen and the lawyers who were present. Press conferences and newspaper articles called the attention of mainstream America to the struggles of the homosexual community. This negative press was so powerful that it represented a decrease in police power. After the fact, police in San Francisco weren't free to harass the homosexual community as much as they had. Henceforward, um, I quote, the SFPD stopped arresting gay men for doing what was wrong and only arrested them for a violation of the law. I hate to say it, but violation of the law was still beholden to the eyes of the policemen and some very homophobic laws that existed, but this was a huge victory for the LGBT plus community in San Francisco. They had fought the police harassment and they won. And now, because I like to jump around, and I feel like we've been on the West Coast for a little too long, um, we're going back to the East Coast to revisit Dewey's Coffee Shop. I talked about Dewey's last episode, but again, it felt like it was important to go into a little bit more detail. Dewey's Coffee Shop was located in downtown Philadelphia and was a favorite hangout for gay teens who were too young to get into the bars. However, the manager of Dewey's decided that the queer boys and girls were driving away business, so he ordered the staff not to serve its gay patrons anymore. Inspired by the young black men and women who staged sit-ins across the South to fight segregation, two boys and one girl refused to leave after being refused service on April 25, 1965. Of course, the police were called, and the three individuals were dragged out of Dewey's and arrested and charged with disorderly conduct. However, the Janus Society... Philadelphia's homophile organization reacted by mimeographing 1,500 leaflets about the discrimination at Dewey's. They stationed themselves in front of the coffee shop for five days, handing the leaflets out to anyone who wanted to enter Dewey's or walked past. 
Eventually, the manager, after seeing how disruptive the Janus Society was being to business, reversed his policy. Again, like with most of them, this action went pretty unreported during the time. And in fact, that made the chair of the Janus Society, Clark Pollock, remark at a homosexual or homophile conference in 1966 that, I quote, we must make our protests unavoidable as news. And then he asked how to do it. Answering himself, he said, by civil disobedience and encouraging not-so-civil protests. In newspaper terms, no news is bad news, good news is no news, and bad news is good news. How about the movement becoming bad news? What a question. Like, in the age of civil disobedience, that's a really interesting question to raise to the LGBT plus community. Um, and I think that concept of not-so-civil protest definitely resonated with the community. And I think might have been in the back of people's minds for a lot of the following protests and riots that came about, including Stonewall. Okay, on to the next thing. If you've watched Netflix's new series, Tales of the City, which is actually a continuation of an older series by the same name, um, they talk about Compton's cafeteria quite a bit and even show a version of it during a flashback episode. It's a pretty significant piece of history, and that's why I'm going to talk about it today. So, Gene Compton's cafeteria was located in the Tenderloin District in San Francisco, California. I know, we're back to the West Coast. Um, but it's been described as a beloved turf to Black and Latino queens. One person who frequented Compton's described it as fabulous, like the Wizard of Oz, which is an interesting comparison, but that might also might be because I had nightmares from the Flying Monkeys in the Wizard of Oz movie as a child, so, you know, maybe that's just me. But I guess, like, the wonderful wizard and all of the magic and the green and stuff and the glitters, that makes sense. So, anyway, back to this. With cheap coffee and food, it was a practical place for a lot of folks to hang out. Um, Compton's management had actually been ordered by the police to shut down at midnight in the hopes that its early closing would discourage homosexuals and other undesirables from gathering after bars closed in the early morning. However, Compton's didn't comply. And, okay, many people who frequented Compton's had been busted at some point or another for violating the masquerading law, and they'd kind of long since accepted that police harassment was the price of being who they were. And the masquerading law, if you don't know, was basically a law saying that it was illegal to dress up, masquerade, I say with heavy air quotes, as a member of the opposite sex. Basically, this was meant to target transgender people. Good fun. And by good fun, I mean fuck that shit. In the summer of 1966, when the police came around one night, Things changed. These women weren't about to sit by anymore. Instead of evacuating Comptons, instead of handing over their identification when approached, one queen threw hot coffee in the officer's face. Soon dishes were being hurled, windows were broken, a police car was vandalized, and a riot had broken out. The next day, gay street teens staged a picket in front of Comptons, advocating for the end of police harassment. These kids were demanding safe spaces. And the riot and the following picket were huge steps for LGBTQ plus civil rights. It was a moment in time when trans women stood up and said, we're not dealing with this any longer. Further south in California, the Black Cat Tavern was a gay bar in the Silver Lake District of Los Angeles. On New Year's Day, 1967, a dozen police officers burst into Black Cat swinging billy clubs and brandishing guns. In response, a group called Pride, which stood for Personal Rights in Defense and Education and was founded by Steve Ginsburg, staged a protest. 
Hundreds of supporters flooded the street Black Cat was located on, with signs that said things like, abolish arbitrary arrests and no more abuse of our rights and dignity, and other similar sayings. Ginsburg also mimeographed 3,000 leaflets talking about police brutality, and these were handed out to pedestrians and passing drivers. The police were present at this protest, but they actually watched from across the street because Ginsburg had done something amazing. He invited lawyers and clergymen to both address the demonstrators and also witness any police brutality that was expected to arise. The invitation of the clergymen and lawyers not only protected the LGBTQ plus members there, but also helped open the eyes of some members of society to what the LGBT community was facing. This is another example of how the 1960s were filled with LGBTQ plus demonstrations and successes leading up to Stonewall. Back on the East Coast, the year is 1968, and we're going to talk about a lesbian bar called Rusty's. In Philadelphia, Rusty's was a favorite bar for lesbians, although it was a well-kept secret due to its location. According to one book, you got to Rusty's by going down Quince, an alley-like street, to a back door of a two-story building, then up a flight of one stairs, and then down a long hallway. It was owned by the mob who paid off the police. And so um, none of Rusty's usual attendants ever expected Rusty's to be raided. So despite its hidden location and the mob payoffs, in March 1968, a handful of plainclothes policemen burst into the bar, turned on the lights, unplugged the jukebox, and began checking IDs. Several women were accused of being drunk and disorderly. This raid was also a surprise because Frank Rizzo, the notoriously homophobic police commissioner of Philadelphia, normally only raided men's bars. On this night, however, Rizzo supposedly heard that Rusty's was serving minors, and that's what spurred forward this raid. However, despite the rumor, none of the arrested women were minors. In fact, none of them had even been asked to show their IDs to prove their age. What an odd thing. It's almost like the justification was fake, and they were just using the raids to be evil assholes. Hmm. So, you know, despite the justification, the raid was meant to do what most raids were meant to do, which was to discourage gay bars by harassing their patrons. The arrested women were released the next, next day, having suffered fear and humiliation and harassment at the hands of the police force. As with all events in this episode, the story of Rusty's doesn't end with the raid. Coincidentally, one lesbian who was arrested, Berna Aronson, had visited Philadelphia's chapter of the Daughters of Bilitis, and homophile organization that we talked about in a former episode, earlier on the same day of the raid. When she and the other arrested lesbians were released from jail, she brought them straight to the Daughters of Bilitis' office and asked the Daughters of Bilitis to fight. Ada Bello, a founding member of the Daughters of Bilitis, had wanted the daughters to be more militant, and what had happened at Rusty's was a compelling cause. Her lover, Carol Friedman, composed a letter to the Philadelphia police inspector demanding that he meet with the Daughters of Bilitis. I want you to sit back and think about what I just said. They wrote a letter and demanded to be seen. A lesbian organization demanding that the police inspector meet with them. This is so far out of the norm. And this is also a really dangerous thing. This was not the standard homophile idea of assimilation and subtlety. This was getting in front of the police who had just arrested people who were gay just for being gay to say, yo, this has to stop. That's a lot of courage. 
And so the officer in charge of the public relations actually agreed to meet with a few representatives, which was another really weird thing. They, the police thought that they were in the right. The law protected them. They didn't have to agree, and yet they did. So Carol Friedman and the Daughters of Billetus president Edna Winans attended. While the, other, while the officer offered no apologies for what had happened at Rusty's, he did believe the Daughters of Billetus when they threatened to make a public protest about the police harassment of lesbians. So, on behalf of the Philadelphia police, this officer told the Philadelphia Inquiry, Inquirer that homosexuals have been, are now, and will be treated equally with heterosexuals. Not sure what that accent was, but again, I just want you to think about that. Have been, are now, and will be treated equally with homosexuals. This was a statement given to a newspaper. It's 1968. And in response to the Daughters of Bilitis' threats of protests, the police force just declared that homosexuals were to be treated equally in Philadelphia. That's a pretty unique victory, and isn't something that you could really expect to happen. There are, of course, many, many more events and victories that took place in the 1960s that I wish I could talk about. Like the multiple 1965 pickets of the White House, the 1966 sip-in, which resulted in the New York City's Human Rights Commission declaring that homosexuals couldn't be refused from being served alcohol in bars and restaurants, the police raid and following protest at the Patch Gay Bar in LA, and so many other events. Unfortunately, in the interest of time, I'm now going to move my focus to the LGBTQ plus community's very own shot hurled around the, heard around the world and talk about the Stonewall Riots. So, the Stonewall Riots are generally known by historians as the start of the gay liberation movement, and of the contemporary LGBTQ plus movements that exist today. As most of you know, this is the event that is talked about the most in discussions of LGBTQ plus history. And as I said before, this year is the 50th anniversary of Stonewall, and that's why I wanted this episode to premiere on June 28th. However, before we go into details, I want to explain that the events of Stonewall are known and also unknown. There are so many differing accounts and conflicting accounts and so many people that were there or not there but said they were there that a lot of stories can't be verified and so some details can't be confirmed. But for those who don't know or those who want to know more about it, I'm going to talk about Stonewall the best that I can and give as much details that have been somewhat confirmed slash mostly agreed upon by historians. So here's what we know. In the early hours of June 28, 1969, approximately 1.20ish a.m., police raided the Stonewall Inn at 53 Christopher Street in Greenwich Village. Stonewall was a popular bar with a good dance floor and a diverse clientele, featuring a quote I'm quoting, Blacks, whites, Puerto Ricans, Asians, hustlers, queens, gays, and lesbians, all relatively young. Um, Stonewall was also owned by the Genovese crime family, which part of the mafia, as most gay bars were. And so, as what was standard, they would pay off the police so that they would either be told when a raid was coming or to try and prevent raids. This is, again, pretty standard. One thing that's really interesting about what happened is that none of the Stonewall employees remember being tipped off that a raid would recur. This raid was a complete surprise, and it began when the police knocked on the door and shouted something along the lines of, Police! Open up! 
I guess probably a lot more menacing and threatening and dickish than that, but yeah. And the bouncer opened the door because there wasn't really another choice there. So six officers of Manhattan's first division public moral squad, one of whom was Inspector Pike, um, entered the bar with two undercover policewomen already inside. Patrons were told to line up and get their IDs out, which was pretty standard for a police raid at the time, as we've covered. Anyone of age and who wasn't masquerading as the other sex were shooed out of the building, while some queens were, who said they were women were taken to the restroom, and it was determined that they'd violated New York Penal Code 240.35, Section 4, against unnatural attire or facial alteration, and they were under arrest. I just want to say, that's a really transphobic law, and, like, I guess what's new, but, like, what the fucking fuck? So, anyway, under normal circumstances, those not under arrest would leave as quickly as possible, but on June 28th, they didn't. As patrons were released by the police, they waited outside the bar, and each time someone came out, the crowd cheered, and the people who had just been freed celebrated. It's said that the tone of the crowd began to shift when trans women charged with violating the masquerading law, the bartender, the hat check girl, the doorman, and the men's room attendant were led out to the paddy wagons, and then the crowd began to boo and get a little bit more rowdy. But then, a butch lesbian was escorted out to the paddy wagons. However, every time they tried to put her in, she escaped and tried to run back to the bar. She was clubbed more than once, and in return, she punched the cop who hit her. On the final time, as she was wrestled back into the squad car, she screamed out to the crowd and asked, why don't you guys do something? And that is when the crowd became explosive and the riot began. The identity of this woman isn't known for sure, but a lot of accounts suggest that it was Stormy Delavari, a black biracial butch lesbian. When asked many years later why she never came forward to take credit for inciting the riots, she said, because it was never anybody's business. Cops were pelted with pennies, a pun symbolizing dirty coppers, cobblestone, beer cans, glass bottles, bricks, you name it. No one is sure who threw the first brick. Some say it was Marsha P. Johnson, a black trans woman, or that it was Sylvia Rivera, a Latina trans woman, but both women deny being the first person to throw anything. While they might not have been the singular person throwing the first item, we do know for sure that the first volley of projectiles came from trans women. One account even says, though, that Marsha P. Johnson filled a bag with bricks and threw it at a squad car, shadowing the windshield after the riots had broken out. And Sylvia Rivera, when someone asked if it was time to cut out, supposedly responded saying, Are you nuts? I'm not missing a minute of this. It's the revolution. These women were front and center during the riots and played a huge role in them. So back to Inspector Pine and the other officers who were there. They're surrounded by people throwing things and hurling things and being pretty violent because, you know, fuck them. So they're driven back into Stonewall and they attempted to barricade the doors for their own safety. Except the crowd had turned into a mob, good for them, honestly, um, and were shouting things like, kill the cops, police brutality, we're not going to take this anymore, and let's get them. And in response to the officers hiding in the bar, a group pried up a nearby parking meter and used it as a battering ram. What ingenuity, honestly. So, unfortunately, upon their success, Inspector Pine and the officers grabbed their guns, and Pine said that anyone who walked through the door, he'd shoot them. So, put a little bit of the, like, oh shit, 
can't hurt the cops, guess they'll kill us. And so, in response, someone reached through the broken window and squirted lighter fluid and dropped a match. They didn't enter the building, so they weren't in violation of what Pine had just threatened. Another person hurled a trash can filled with burning paper inside. While the fire was soon put out, and after almost being charred alive, Inspector Pine seemed to realize that he was a little bit out of his depth. At 2.55 a.m., police buses carrying members of the Tactical Patrol Force arrived. The TPF's major job had been to quell the New York City race riots and anti-war protests up until now. Except the, TF, the TPF was met with, a quote, I quote, a rocket-style chorus line of queens who linked arms, kicked high, and to the tune of ta-ra-ra-boom-dieh, bellowed. We are the Stonewall Girls. We wear our hair in curls. We don't wear underwear. We show our pubic hair. We pick up lots of tricks. That's how we get our kicks. We wear our dungarees above our Nelly knees. I mean, come on, y'all. I know I've said I want you to think about things a lot in this episode, but really think about this. Think about the amount of courage that these women embodied. These are people who were constantly targeted by transphobic and homophobic laws, constantly facing raids and persecution. And in the face of riot police, link arms and fucking do a kick line, throwing everything they have in these police's faces, verbally, physically. Like, that's, that's amazing to me. The courage of these women is awe-inspiring. And if, if you take anything away from this episode, I want you to remember that line. A rocket-style chorus line of queens who linked arms, kicked high, and chanted in the face of riot police. Just let that resonate with you and think about the power of trans women of color. Eventually, the tactical patrol force was able to disperse the crowd. And the New York Times reported the next day, on page 33, about an unprecedented melee in a short article titled, Four Policemen Hurt in Village Raid. This was both unsurprising, given how little the other LGBTQ plus riots had been publicized, but also was a bit surprising. As the pent-up rage of Stonewall's atten attendees had escalated into violence, Craig Rodwell, a well-known gay rights activist, known for his involvement with the Mattachine Society, his founding of the homophile youth movement in neighborhoods in 1967, his founding of the Oscar Wilde Memorial Bookshop, which was the first bookstore for LGBTQ plus authors and patrons, and known for coining the catchphrase gay power, acted. I quote, ever conscious of the need for publicity, for visibility, and realizing that a critical moment had arrived, Craig called all three daily papers and alerted them that a major news story was breaking. Then he ran to his apartment a few books, blocks away to get his camera. You'd think with all his effort, the riot would have gained more traction. But it didn't, and that was that. At first. The next day, those who hadn't been there the first night, but had heard about it, flocked to Stonewall. They had protest signs and they had numbers, and queer people were kissing in broad daylight while the police watched on. That evening, people gathered in the bar again, after fat Tony Loria, the mafia owner, had had a cleanup crew working all day. The main room was still charred, there were no shades for the light bulbs, the jukebox was broken, and yet, the bar had announced that there was no cover charge that night, and while they couldn't sell liquor, sodas would be free. 
Lillian Faderman describes the night as, at first, nothing more than a block party, with greens camping and posing for pictures, and some gays shouting gay power, we want freedom now, and equality for homosexuals. But as the crowd grew again, people spilled out into the streets, and things got wild once more. The TPF were brought back in, and this time the riot lasted until 5.30 in the morning. On Sunday, hundreds of the LGBTQ plus community flocked to Stonewall again. Police, having been ordered to head off trouble and avoid another night of riots, all but begged the queer folk to go inside Stonewall and have a drink. They just wanted to get people off the streets. Of course, there were still some riotous acts, but for the most part, the LGBTQ plus community seemed to know that they'd won, and they spent the night reveling in their victory. Most of the fighting dissipated by, by Sunday, June 29th, but scattered acts of resistance continued through Wednesday, July 2nd. I mentioned how during the riots, an article was published on page 33 of the New York Times that didn't really cover anything that happened. However, after the fact, news kind of broke out. On Sunday, July 6th, the Sunday News, New York's picture newspaper, ran a front page story with the headline, Homo nest raided, queen bees are stinging mad. You can imagine how horribly offensive this article was, how scathing a cishet white man could be while writing about a group of people demonized by society for decades, but this is one of the major news articles that was published about the riots. I'll skip most of it, but here are some bits from the second and third paragraphs to kind of let you know what was being published. Last weekend, the queens had turned commandos and stood bra strap to bra strap against an invasion of the helmeted tactical patrol force. Queen power reared its bleached blonde head in revolt. New York City experienced its first homosexual riot. Not amazing, but this story got traction. It started blowing up, especially in queer newsletters and magazines, and something changed. The Stonewall riots had a huge impact on the LGBTQ plus movement, and I want to talk about something that I kind of touched on before but want to revisit. We don't know who threw that first brick. Don't know for sure who started the riots like beyond Stormy throwing that punch and asking why people wouldn't help her. But I think what matters in all of this is that there were a lot of people there during the riots who fought for their rights to exist, and they were mostly trans women of color and lesbians and gay men of color. Some of the big names we have surrounding Stonewall are Marsha P. Johnson, Sylvia Rivera, Tammy Novak, Miss Major Griffin Gracie, Stormy Delivery, and these names are hugely important because they were there and led the riots in a lot of ways. And also, they all did a lot of really important things after the fact. Well, one person did something before the fact, and I kind of want to talk about that because it's an interesting fact. So Marsha P. Johnson is extremely important to the Stonewall riots because without her, trans women wouldn't have even been allowed in Stonewall at all, according to some historians. So according to them, originally the bar only served gay men, but Marsha P. persistently demanded admittance and succeeded in getting Stonewall opened up to trans women and lesbians. Since the riots were led by trans women of color, by queens, and the inciting incident centered around a lesbian color, without Marsha P. fighting for admittance into Stonewall in the year before, the riot may not have ever have happened. 
Marsha P. Johnson is also known for, with Sylvia Rivera, founding an organization called Straight Transvestite Action Revolutionaries, STAR, which would provide help to homeless and at-risk transgender youth. These women were major leaders of the LGBTQ plus community, and each of these women and STAR will be getting their own spotlight episodes coming soon. The events of Stonewall acted as a catalyst for the gay liberation movement, sounding the rally for that movement, and it became an emblem for gay and lesbian power. Fueled by the events at Stonewall, an organization called the Gay Liberation Front formed in early July of the same year. The formation of the GLF changed the atmosphere surrounding LGBTQ plus rights and gave lesbians more resources for their activism, as well as gay men, um, and allowing them to feel pride instead of shame about their identities. The GLF openly demanded an end to persecution of gay men and women and went on to attack traditional gender and family roles. However, it was not their radical action that set them apart from the homophiles, but their refusal to stay in the closet or to assimilate. The organization's very name was meant to proclaim that they were gay and they would not be cowed as previous generations had been. One of their first mottos was out loud and proud. Pretty soon, though, the GLF dissolved and was replaced by an organization called the Gay Activist Alliance. More information about the GLF, the GAA, and the gay liberation movement will be coming in a later episode. However, the gay liberation movement created traditions within the LGBTQ community that still exist today that I wanted to mention. Pride parades. The idea for the first parade slash march was introduced by Craig Rodwell following Stonewall in 1969 as the Christopher Street Liberation Day Parade on June 28, 1970. The event occurred simultaneously with a gay pride parade or gay pride march in Los Angeles and in Chicago. Members of the LGBTQ plus community around the country celebrated their sexuality and acknowledged that the police and government had lost the fight to force LGBTQ plus individuals into hiding. The pride parades marked a shift that allowed gay men and lesbians to come out of hiding and begin pushing for their rights. As you hopefully know, the month of June is now a celebration of pride, colloquially called Pride Month. And every major city in a lot of small towns have a parade or event of some kind to celebrate the LGBTQ plus community. There's also a whole lot of corporations trying to sell you a whole lot of things. And all I'm going to say of that is support queer creators and queer content first, please. Um, so Pride has changed a lot. And there's a lot of debate surrounding it about corporation involvement, what Pride stands for, who Pride is for, etc. And I don't really want to get into all of that here. If you like a good debate slash discourse, check out Twitter where these conversations abound. I will take a moment to say that for me, Pride is a celebration of our community and all of our members in it, and was a place where I as a young queer felt welcome and got to explore a whole lot of community that I didn't really know existed beforehand. Um, I think that Pride should be a time when we reflect on the history of our community, the progress we've made, the progress we still need to fight for to protect all of our LGBTQ plus siblings around the world, um, whether they're out or not. Um, I think it's important to recognize that not everyone is in a place where they can safely be out and celebrate with us this month, but all of our community deserve love and are valid. And yeah, Pride is about celebrating everyone in our community, whether they can be with us at Pride or not. So on that note, Happy Pride Month to you all. Happy 50th anniversary of Stonewall. 
I hope you learned something interesting today. And if you want to know, learn more, check out the LGBT Time Machine website for some recommendations on further reading you can do. If you have any questions, feel free to chat with me on Twitter at FairyPrinceTheo. And this has been LGB Time Machine with Theo. Thanks for coming aboard and joining me on this adventure. I hope to see you again soon. But until then, love and light to you. Bye.